You're listening to the Connect Over Coffee podcast, the show that brings you hope and inspires you to embrace the spirit of overcoming. Each month, we deliver the latest and greatest information on progress and advances in ovarian cancer screening, diagnosis, treatment, and survivorship. Now here's your host, Runsi Sen. Let's connect over coffee. Hello, Overcomers, and welcome to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. I'm Rinsi, the founder of Overcome, and today we are joined by our esteemed advisory board member, Dr. Dennis Chi. So often termed as the goat of ovarian surgery, our advisory board member, Dr. Chi, heads the uh, surgical division at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. He is dedicated to caring for and surgically treating our overcomers and has had numerous blazing success stories in his glorious career. We especially love Dr. Chi for his commitment and his passion towards our overcomers and for freely speaking his mind and sharing his thoughts always with us. So we have a lot to chat with Dr. Chi today, focusing on the latest advances and findings in ovarian cancer surgery and its role in overcoming ovarian cancer. So grab your favorite beverage. I have mine. I I think Dr. Chi has his too. And so we will, and join us for this. There we go. Thank you um, for this thought-provoking discussion. And if you have any questions as we go along, please type in the comment sections below and we will get it addressed post the discussion. And as I always say, please share these Pearls of wisdom and the great insights Dr. Chi is about to share with us with anyone who may benefit uh, from this um, excellent conversation that's about to take place. So with that, a huge welcome to you, Dr. Chi, or welcome back to you to this uh, episode of Connect Over Coffee. Always a tremendous honor to have you with us. Well, I think I'm the one who's honored. Uh, thank you, Runcy, for allowing me to speak again. I hope I don't ramble on too much. There's, uh, We talked about some of the questions, and one of them is kind of one of the questions that I could speak for like 18 hours and just bore people. So I'll try not to do that today. And uh, I look forward to any comments. And uh, And I also thank the overcomers for um, their always their enthusiastic uh, questions and comments and and um, and uh, just positive reinforcement uh, uh, for all of us who are involved with the overcome group uh, that they that they provide with us. It's just a wonderful thing. Thank you. So, you know, as I always have many, many questions for you, but before we get, get into the specific of surgery, tell us uh, your thoughts on ovarian cysts and their p- possible progression to ovarian cancer. Also, um, I, I was reading in some recent studies that that indicate that endometriosis could lead to ovarian cancer in certain cases. What should our overcomers know about this? So I think that the problem is, and I could be wrong, you, you probably... Um, are more up to date on some of the literature than I am. And I don't know of any recent study that says that ovarian cysts can undergo what's called malignant transformation and become cancerous. First no, of all- meant, No, no, not the ovarian cysts. I was talking about the endometriosis. Uh, oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to address that in a little bit, but just so people know, and we can just all be on the same page. It's normal for reproductive women to have cysts on their ovary. That's called functional cysts. And then, so that's one group. And then that's, I would group that as A, functional or, um, and then B are benign ovarian cysts that aren't going to go away. And you could categorize endometriomas and endometriotic cysts in the B category. And then there's C, obviously, uh, cancerous cysts. So you, you 
uh, it, with modern technology, although MRI is the best, we really can't with 100% accuracy distinguish A, functional cyst from B, benign ovarian cyst to C, cancerous cysts. There are characteristics of each of them that are helpful. Uh, but like I said, in women who are still menstruating, the reason why they're menstruating is every one month they're forming a cyst on their ovary. If they don't get, and then in the middle of the cycle, they have what's called ovulation. The cyst breaks and gets released into the female reproductive organs. And if that woman doesn't get pregnant, she gets a period. The fact that women after the age of 52, 55, when they go into the menopause, the reason why they don't have periods is not because the uterus stops functioning. It's because the ovaries stop creating cysts and releasing the hormones that create the cysts and then go through ovulation and release the hormones that give people a period. So it's all kind of related. And going back to the age of the patient, if somebody is, let's say, 30, and you do a sonogram on that patient in the middle of her cycle, just before ovulation, you will see an ovarian cyst. And generally, the, the, the way you would, quote unquote, work that up is, okay, I have a 30-year-old woman who has a five or six centimeter ovarian cyst. I don't know, is it A, a functional cyst, B, a benign cyst, C, a cancer? So then I would do a follow-up scan, sonogram, a month later. And if she went through ovulation, that cyst should have ruptured, gone away, the cyst will be gone. If it's a benign cyst, B, or a cancerous cyst, they're not going to go away. So that's how you can kind of eliminate functional ovarian cysts. And then you have B and C, benign ovarian cysts, like endometriosis, endometriomas, and cancerous cysts. And yes, it is true that endometriotic cysts, which are endometriosis in a ball, they can eventually become cancerous. We don't know how or why they undergo this quote unquote, this malignant transformation, but they can form two kinds of ovarian cancer. One is called endometrioid ovarian cancer and another is called clear cell ovarian cancer. So those, there is a link there, but the, there's a lot of women who have endometriosis and the chances uh, that a woman with endometriosis will, millions of women have them. The chances that that woman is specifically going to get ovarian cancer in her endometriotic cyst is very, very rare. It's a little bit higher. Her risk of ovarian cancer is a little bit higher than an average woman who's about 1.4% for an average woman. And it may be two or three times greater than that for a woman who has an endometriotic cyst. But just think about the math. Three times 1.4 is still less than 5%. So just because a woman has endometriosis, I don't think that she needs to worry that she's definitively going to get ovarian cancer in her lifetime. But yes, she's a little bit higher risk than somebody who doesn't have endometriosis. Thank you. So, um, you know, we have talked about this before, but generally speaking, surgery and chemo chemotherapy and the sequence uh, of that seems to be a topic of debate somewhat always, right? So for patients that are in better health, um, do you think surgery first leads to longer survival and or cure and we would love your thoughts on that. And what do you recommend typically to the patients in your practice? So the, my, the short answer is if a patient is healthy enough to undergo uh, a long operation and the surgeon can safely take out all the visible cancer, wherever it is, then yes, that is the, in my opinion, what leads to the best results. And Studies have shown that 
even there's there's two groups of people maybe that in 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 this how to manage advanced ovarian cancer. And remember, the majority, two-thirds to three-quarters of patients who get diagnosed with ovarian cancer have advanced disease where the cancer is already spread beyond the ovary. And so there's two groups of people or two camps. One, like myself, that believes in doing the surgery first, uh, if possible, and another group who believes that the majority of patients should have chemotherapy first. And we there's a lot in common. I think both groups believe that doing the surgery first is and getting all the cancer out is associated with the best outcomes. Both sides agree with that. What they don't agree upon is what should the surgeon do to get a complete gross resection? For instance, at my institution, we will do six hour operations, take out intestine if it needs to be taken out, spleen, take out a piece of the diaphragm or the lining of the diaphragm, all is what's called a debulking operation. Um, other centers may think that that is quote unquote too aggressive. And they want they say, well, if you have to do all that, then the patient should get chemotherapy first, shrink the cancer down, and then do the surgery later, uh, followed by more chemotherapy. There is definitely, in my opinion, there's definitely times when either is appropriate. And there, so it's kind of like a pendulum. If you have 100 patients, I think everybody would agree there's 10 or 20% of patients who should definitely have the surgery first. There's 10 or 20% of patients who everybody would agree should have the chemotherapy first. And there's this middle group where some people say, no, 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 you have to take tumor from the diaphragm. They should get chemo. And there's other people who say, no, 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 I can take tumor from the diaphragm all the time. Not a big deal. The incision needs to be a little bit bigger. Come on, let's, let's do that. That So it's not, I think all camps agree that complete removal of all tumor is associated with the best outcomes. I think the difference is what extent would you go doing the surgery to achieve that goal? Wonderful um, explanation. Thank you, Dr. Chi. So, um, you know, in terms of ovarian cancer being so hard to treat, what do you think drives this resistance to therapy and how can we address that? And some say that, you know, the advanced ovarian cancer in majority of the cases um, may not be treatable. I know you don't agree with this statement, but that's why we want to know more from you as to um, what, what are your thoughts on advanced ovarian cancer and why do people say that it's not treatable? And uh, what what would you share with our overcomers? I, I don't know if people say it's not treatable because treatable- I mean, curable. Yeah, curable. Yeah, I mean, I, I think- I think even if you have uh, what's called platinum resistant end stage ovarian cancer, it's treatable. Um, you give treatment and it may not work, but it, it's it. We try, we treat. So I guess what you're meaning is that is there a potential for cure and can we prolong survival with the treatments that we have? And the answer is, I, I certainly believe in certain instances uh, uh, we can cure people even with advanced stage disease. I think in certain instances, if we have somebody who would have otherwise lived two to four years, but we, with surgery and chemo and whatever treatments we have, we have them live 10 or 15 years. I think that's a win. So yeah, I don't, I don't really understand when people say, you know, somebody has stage four disease, we should just, you know, put them in hospice or, or not try to do any, anything uh, aggressive. Um, this, cancer, the good news is this cancer is very sensitive in the initial setting to the chemotherapies that we have. So I would, I, it's very, very rarely that I see somebody with 
stage four, meaning spread outside of the belly cancer, that I would say, especially an initial diagnosis, yeah, we, we shouldn't try to treat this or try to be aggressive. If they fail first-line treatment, that's usually a bad prognostic sign, and then maybe you would, and I shouldn't say the patient fails. If the cancer, if the treatment fails to eradicate the disease, not the patients don't fail. Maybe we fail the patients, maybe the chemotherapy fails, but the patients never fail. So if if the patient isn't responding to treatment, then that's a bad sign. And, and maybe doing being too aggressive in the future is, is not something we should pursue. But um, I wouldn't just make a judgment until somebody gets at least the first line treatment. Thank you. So um, what advances do you think have happened in the recent years when it comes to surgical advances in ovarian cancer? And so also when you do your surgeries, what metrics do you typically use to rate a surgery to be successful? So tell us a little more about that. And especially in the context of, you know, different types of ovarian cancers, like early uh, different types, as well as the staging, like the early stage versus the advanced stage ovarian cancers. I think with when you're dealing with early stage disease and the cancer is either limited to the ovary or with has minimal cancer spread, then I think the the advances in minimally invasive, whether it be laparoscopic or robotic surgery, have really uh, made us able to do operations that we would have to be, do a big incision in the past, but now we can do them through small incisions. That's definitely uh, been a, a definite, a huge advance. I reviewed an article recently by a, a group that did what we would normally do open, where we took tumor, where we take tumor from the diaphragm, we take out the uterus and the ovaries and the colon, and this was un, all done with robotic surgery. And I think things are going in that way. But like a lot of other things, I think people get all excited about advances, and and in, instead of just honing the, the skills that you have, trying to like go to another shiny object and try to just see what you can do robotically. I mean, this is this is somebody's mother, this is somebody's wife, this is somebody's sister or uh, on, the, on the table. And so why it's very, very nice that somebody can do something robotically and spare a big incision. In my opinion, I would rather, and I think most patients would agree, I would rather do an open operation and make sure I get all the cancer out then do a minimally invasive operation and potentially miss uh, sanctuaries of cancer behind the liver, behind the spleen, um, in areas of the bowel that you can't see. So I just, I, I'm all for, and I do a lot of minimally invasive surgery. I just think that we need to be cautious that we're not just trying to prove some point or push some envelope and not uh, keep patient care at the forefront of what we're doing. Um, as far as what we did, what we've done at, at my center, we recently in the past few months published our experience on when we do surgeries before chemo, we try to get all the cancer out of the belly, but sometimes we find, or we know ahead of time that there's disease in the chest and we've reported excellent surgical outcomes with not just the, taking out the cancer in the pelvis and the abdomen and the upper abdomen, but also, um, if it's in the chest, uh, we're able to access that through the abdomen, through incision in the diaphragm and take out cancers in the chest and get patients to a complete resection um, in the chest, the abdomen, the pelvis. And in, in our experience, was, it was associated with really, really good uh, survival rates and outcomes. And to answer the other question, the metrics is, this is cancer. This isn't plastic surgery. The outcome is, does Mrs. Smith live longer 
than if I do this or not. That's the metric. You can be shiny objects, complete gross resection, but I did complete gross resection and I did it laparoscopically, but well, I didn't really look behind the liver. I didn't look here. I didn't look there. What a surgeon thinks is his metric is one thing. And, you know, surgeons have a tendency to tell fish stories. Yeah. I took out a huge tumor and I got it out and I took it out in 35 seconds. And then the patient went home the next day. Okay. But then the cancer came back in two months. That's not, that's nothing to brag about to me. The bottom line is when with our surgeries, are we helping these patients go into remission longer, have, be off chemotherapy longer and live longer? Those are the important metrics. Yeah, I, I can see why your patients love you so much, Dr. Chi. So moving on to the next question, um, you know, the second look surgery, right? So my understanding from what I have read and understood is that it has largely been shelved. So please share your thoughts on that and tell us a little bit more about this procedure and um, if it is still relevant and if it's still ongoing in certain cases and, and in, if so, then why? Well, you know, it's like a lot of things, they, things go in cycles, right? I mean, bell-bottom genes were in and they're out and they're back in. So second look laparoscopy was uh, very, it was something that I trained in doing in the late 1990s. And we did a lot of second look, third look, fourth look um, laparotomies, not small laparoscopies. And they used to use it uh, at our center. You try a new drug, maybe an intraperitoneal drug, and you wanted to see if it worked. So you you did a first surgery and you had cancer and then you would give treatment and then you would do a second surgery and see what the responses are. That was a little bit morbid for our patients. And so that kind of went out of vogue, but we still clung on to the idea that when a patient had her, her first treatment, her first surgery and chemo, we used to do second look surgeries to see if there was still cancer there. And even if there wasn't cancer there, we would give what's called maintenance therapy, where we would give chemotherapy directly into the belly called intraperitoneal chemotherapy. We had good results with that approach. And then um, GOG-172 happened that showed that chemotherapy, instead of after a second look surgery, but put in the front with the first six treatments of chemo was really, really quite beneficial. So second look laparoscopies, doing intraperitoneal chemotherapy after your initial treatment kind of moved to the front line setting. And for a while, everybody who had a good result with the surgery as part of their post-operative chemo would get chemotherapy directly in the belly. And then um, Avastin came along and there was a study, study by the GOG that showed that intraperitoneal chemotherapy didn't really benefit our patients if we gave them Avastin. So kind of intraperitoneal chemotherapy was kind of shelved. And um, so I know the question is about second look surgery, but the second look surgery kind of went hand in hand with the whole IP chemotherapy and consolidation or maintenance treatment. So um, to this day, we really haven't brought back second look laparoscopy, although uh, there is a big uh, grant that uh, by the, uh, a big group called BTC, and they're trying to see MD Anderson and our center and other centers are, are looking into now that we have all different kinds of molecular and targeted agents, might we address the idea of doing a second look surgery again? And instead of doing maintenance intraperitoneal chemotherapy, maybe do biopsies of patients after they've completed their primary treatment. And based on the biopsies, maybe do some sort of oral a targeted agent or even IV, but not intraperitoneal. So it's my, the reason why I say that is kind of going to make a comeback, but in the research uh, space 
And I don't think it's going to be offered second look laparoscopies uh, in the general setting, but probably in a research setting. So more so in a clinical trials kind of a setting, right? Exactly. Yes. So thank you. For that reason to test those drugs, because even when we were doing intraperitoneal chemotherapy, the point is, why subject somebody to a surgical procedure if you're just getting the information for you and the patient, oh, the cancer's still there or not at the time of second look. If you're not going to do anything with that information, if it's not going to make any difference and you're just going to observe the patient or you're going to give them all some maintenance treatment, why bother doing that? But if it's going to impact on the treatment after uh, the second look surgery, you may do one thing. And if it's you find this, you may do another thing. If you find that, uh, then it may it's making a comeback. And that may be the way it goes for in these in this clinical trial we're doing. Makes sense. Thank you. So uh, in terms of reducing post-operative issues, right, that our overcomers experience typically, um, what would be your guidance in in reducing those? And what, what should they generally just be uh, vigilant about after surgery in terms of their recovery and the challenges being posed? I think that um, the, the thing is with ovarian cancer, I, I probably said this the last time I was on this, Ovarian cancer is like the Brady Bunch. You remember? Yes. Jan was so upset because Marsha was getting over, yes, overshadowing her. And it was all about Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Well, with ovarian cancer, it's all about the bowel, bowel, bowel. So bowel is what causes people to come to medical attention or it's mistaken that somebody has something wrong with their bowel when they have ovarian cancer. When we operate on people with ovarian cancer, that's the number one reason why we can't get all the cancer out. When we do operate on the bowel, that's the one that gives us the most complications. And when can ovarian cancer is not controlled, involvement of the bowel is what gives us problems like bowel obstructions. So yeah, it's all about the bowel. And I think that uh, after the surgery, or to uh, the, the big thing that we worry about after ovarian cancer surgery is we worry about bowel complications like blockage of the intestine, poor return of bowel function, um, uh, anastomotic leaks where we put the bowel back together and it, and it leaks out. I don't know if there's specifically anything that patients can uh, do uh, in that situation. I mean, we encourage our patients after surgery because we're so worried about them not um, progressing well. We ask them to get up, walk around, that help, helps bowel function, chew gum, uh, and just try not to take too much narcotic pain medicines because after surgery, if you take a lot of narcotic pain medicines, you can get what's called an ileus where your bowel doesn't function well, and then we may think you're blocked, and then that could lead a pro to a prolonged hospitalization. So uh, they're doing all we're doing all different kinds of things to decrease narcotic usage after the surgery, but nothing is foolproof and slow return of bowel function and bowel problems after surgery. That's that's the bane of our existence when we do these kinds of uh, big big ovarian cancer operations. So whatever you can do, whatever you can to improve your bowel function after surgery is would be my advice. Okay. So in general, you, you spoke about minimally invasive surgeries and you, you I think you mentioned that typically early stage ovarian cancer patients are better candidates for a minimally invasive, right? Uh, can you shed some more light on what this surgery is? What is minimally invasive? What does it mean? And what should our overcomers know and ask of their surgeons in terms of their options uh, in surgery? 
Well, I mean, I think usually a surgeon will tell you that whether they think that the, the operation can be done with minimally invasive surgery or not. So minimally invasive surgery is when you make small little incisions, uh, one to two centimeters are called keyhole, like a keyhole. People call them keyhole incisions. Uh, one may be in the belly button or it may be a little bit higher than the belly button. And then you have maybe three or four or other incisions where you put instruments in and you can do operations. You can take out the ovaries. You can take out the uterus. You can even take out a piece of fat called the omentum through those small incisions. And for a situation where it appears that the cancer is confined to the ovary and there's not widespread cancer or any concern of widespread cancer, then you can do a staging operation. You can take out the ovary and you can biopsy the belly uh, to see biopsy normal tissue, appearing tissue to see if the cancer has spread to the diaphragm, to the omentum, to the lymph nodes. So you take those out. They're all normal appearing. And so they're small and you, you take little biopsies. That's what we call ovarian cancer staging. When you have cancer that is obviously spread to the diaphragm or the omentum or the bowel, that's not then the goal of the operation isn't staging. The goal of the operation is to surgically take out any visible cancer, any cancer that you feel. That's what debulking is. And that is a little bit of a debate in our field, whether people can do that well enough with minimally invasive surgery uh, or not. And again, my concern would be you can't see through bowel. You can't see through the liver or the spleen, which is how minimally invasive surgery is done. You're using a camera to tell you what's there and what's not. And so again, I, I spend a lot of time running the bowel, moving, looking around to make sure I'm not missing one single dot of cancer. And there's no question in my mind that it's much more likely that you're going to miss some cancer during a debulking when you're just looking with a camera than if you're feeling around with your hands and and moving stuff, moving the bowel out of the way and holding things with your, your hands and feeling. So I would say minimally invasive surgery for early stage disease. I'm very, I'm not sold on uh, minimally invasive surgery for advanced stage disease just yet. Okay, and so this brings me to the next great segue to my next question on the TRUST trial, right? That which is ongoing, which seems to be a multi-year um, trial, which is supposed to read out, I think, next year. Um, what are the results that you're expecting from it? And what, what should our overcomers know about this uh, particular trial and its possible implications? I, I think the power of the overcomers, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but most of the people who are in overcomers have ovarian cancer already. So the trust study doesn't really uh, help their situation at all because the trust study is for newly diagnosed ovarian cancer patients who present the two thirds to three quarters that present with advanced stage disease. And it's a randomized trial comparing doing the surgery first and then chemo versus doing chemotherapy, shrinking things down and then doing surgery. And so, I don't think it directly will help the overcomers, but I think that the, the benefit of the overcomers, and we'll, I guess we'll talk about that more in education, is having been there and gone through all this and with the tremendous knowledge that they have, the treatment of the primary disease is not really going to be applicable to them, but the, the power that you all have to pass the word along to, to people who are just diagnosed or just deciding that they want to um, have recurrence and they're just deciding on whether to stay in their local hospital or go to a major center. I think that's the huge power of overcomers to, to explain to those people, no, you don't 
understand, no, I mean, where you get treated is very important. And that first treatment is probably the most important treatment. And that's why the trust study is so important because the G1 oncology community can't even agree on whether you should do surgery first or chemo first. If you can't, if you see a patient in the, in your office and you don't like, what do I want to do? Well, I don't know. I could do surgery first. I could do chemo first. They want to know if you know what you're talking about. They don't want you to just sit there and talk about the literature. They want a recommendation. So I haven't had a lot of problem with this because I firmly believe that doing the surgery first is the way to go. Um, if it can be done safely. So, but believe it or not, in our field, both in America and abroad, it's still a very, very controversial issue about whether they do the surgery first or the chemo first. And I feel that, you know, just from just from you speaking, it, it seems to me that when you do the surgery first for an advanced ovarian cancer patient, the quality of the surgeon and the, you know, the precision techniques can be so important in this case, right? So uh, in terms of that also, Dr. Chi, majority of our um, overcomers are being treated at community hospitals or they go first to a community hospital where there probably isn't even a gynecologic oncologist or if so, there's only, you know, uh, one person treating multiple patients. So what is your guidance and in general to patients who are advanced stage who've been diagnosed? And I know that you firmly believe in surgery first, um, how should our overcomers then seek that in in case their surgeons are saying that we will do chemotherapy first or you know something that is not what you're recommending? Yeah, I, I think that the overcomers are um, really, really wise and they they know a lot. Uh, but again, when you're first diagnosed, it's just so much information and a lot as you think you have an infection, and so you don't want to travel to a major center to get treated. We're just about to publish uh, a paper on this. And we looked at the New York State database uh, of ovarian initially diagnosed ovarian cancer patients. And what we found is that you know, there's a lot of data out there on, a certain, on volume. You have uh, theoretically cancer centers have more volume and community places that are great for certain things, but not for advanced ovarian cancer debulking, have lower volume. And study after study has shown that, and it's like everything else, you know, I'm a golfer. The more I play golf, the better I am. If I don't play for two years, my craft goes down. So there's a certain um, better outcome when you have volume, practice, et cetera, et cetera. And what we found in this study is, is tens of, I forget the exact number, but thousands of patients were analyzed to see where they got their initial surgery. And how far it was from a, where they went uh, to, from where they lived, I mean, to a low volume center versus a high volume center. And in looking at the data and categorizing high volume centers and like 20 or more operations per year, that's not a lot, versus low volume centers that had less than 20, the difference in time to go to a high volume center versus a low volume center was 10 minutes. 10 minutes. So you could have gone to a high volume center and not necessarily gone to my center or something like that, but a, a really good center and drove 10 more minutes for one operation. The most important prognostic factor for advanced ovarian cancer is the outcome of that first surgery. And I, so I, I, and, but people just didn't realize that. And I'm not blaming the patients. I think that we in the field do a not so great job. We're so politically correct that we don't want to say to people, You've only done one ovarian cancer operation in the last two years. 
Did you ever think about sending it to a major center to, to get this operation done? Um, we're just too politically correct or scared or or whatever uh, to say that. But I mean, I think the data bears that out, that experience matters. So what you're saying also, you know, it should be like the, our overcomers should be empowered with that knowledge to perhaps ask their surgeon also that how many ovarian cancer surgeries have you typically, have you, have you recently done or how many do you do typically in a day to kind of understand uh, where the level of expertise or, or, you know, especially in the case of an advanced ovarian cancer surgery, where you're saying that it could be it could be the most important thing that you have done in the whole treatment process. So they should also be asking their surgeons that question. That, sure. And I, and I think the overcomers need to, if they get contacted by people who are just diagnosed to tell them you need to go to a, a major place or at least find out if your surgeon has experience doing this operation. I think that's pretty basic. And I know that some people are scared to do that. And as a matter of fact, you know, I sometimes somebody comes to see me and, oh, I was referred to you. And I know that you, you know, you're head of ovarian cancer surgery. And they say, I just have to ask you this, Dr. Chi, how many of these have you done? And I, I just kind of laugh at that. And I could see, I mean, I, I know that's what they're said to do, but I could see if I was some in another place, I could see getting a little bit um, insulted by that. But you know what? You got to do what you got to do. This is your life. This is your family's life or family, um, you know, member of your family's life. If you insult the surgeon, that's okay. Go somewhere else then, if they're not happy. If they're not happy with their with your question, love that. Thank you. So, um, cancer related infertility, right? That is also a major concern among women um, that are of childbearing age. So, how do you help your patients make decisions about fertility preservation and pregnancy during their treatment and surgery? So, yeah, the, this question is this about the surgery itself? or the preparation before surgery, or the surgery is done now, we're worried about chemotherapy affecting fertility. Anything that you would like to share regarding this? Any, <laughs> yeah, I mean, any anything that you would like to share would be great for our overcomers to know, I think. Uh, well, I guess one thing is um, my own personal experience. I had a patient who had stage one ovarian cancer. So she, I think she was diagnosed at the time of her cesarean section with her second child. And um, they took her ovary out. It was cancerous. So I did this after. Obviously, she had her cesarean section and then came to see me months later. And I took her back and I did, I don't remember if it was an open or minimally invasive staging. where We took out the lymph nodes and all those things, but everything else looked normal. So she was, in fact, surgical stage one, preserved her ability to get pregnant. And then she went on chemotherapy. Uh, I do believe she was in her 30s, maybe late 30s. And the reason why I say this story is that number one, uh, we preserved her ability to get pregnant, but we did give her chemo and she was able to have, I believe maybe even two more children naturally, even though she had ovarian cancer, staging surgery and chemo cytotoxic chemotherapy. So it is possible if you still retain your uterus and one ovary to get pregnant naturally. And even if you get chemotherapy, it doesn't permanently damage the ovaries to the point where you can't get pregnant. It will stun the ovaries sometimes, and patients sometimes don't get their periods during their chemo. But um, it's like it's like a lot of other things. If you're 25 and you're getting chemotherapy, you're you're definitely gonna get your periods back. If you're 35, probably. If you're 45, the reserve of the ovaries, you may not the eggs may not bounce back. 
The sun seems to love you as much. I know. As I was gonna. I was gonna say. Should I? Let's see. Yes, much better. Thank you. So, um, so yeah, I mean, in terms of, you know, the questions that these young women need to ask their surgeon about fertility preservation, uh, are there any, is there any guidance on your end? Because not everyone is going to Dr. Chi, whether or not they should, but what, what kind of, um, you know, guidance would you yeah, give? You know, the, the, when, when I was, when I was a uh, early in training and fellow there we we i think things have gotten better on that side of the of the of the field in that um you used to be able to freeze embryos embryos are the egg and the sperm and so you but, but we used to say you can never freeze eggs because they were unable to thaw the eggs out and then implant them uh, with a sperm and, and get somebody pregnant. But the technology has gotten to the point now where, um, and I, I am not nearly an expert on this, but if there is potentially a situation where I'm going to be operating and potentially taking out both ovaries, if I'm taking out just one, I don't know if we go to all the trouble to do this because there can be problems associated with doing this kind of, uh, this kind of artificial reproductive technology. But let's say I was taking out the remaining ovary or something like that. There are ways that uh, the reproductive endocrine infertility doctors can take the ovary, take some tissue from the ovary and freeze that and then potentially thaw it, get the eggs out and, and um, use it for uh, genetic similar uh, implantation so that that patient could theoretically have a child with, with her genetic makeup in the future. So that's possible. Yeah. So, you know, the, we, you briefly mentioned high tech, right? Um, we talked about that uh, just briefly. And um, so has that been completely shelved that the, the combination of um, surgery and high tech and does it not improve prognosis of ovarian cancer? <laughs> maybe, maybe you think that, uh, so we have, we actually didn't talk about high tech. We talked about cold intraperitoneal okay. chemotherapy given outside of the OR. That's just flat old intraperitoneal. HIPEC is heated chemotherapy and it's done in the operating room. And maybe the reason why you say has it been shelved is because, uh, yeah, we at Memorial uh, published a paper that showed that with recurrent ovarian cancer, we operated on everybody and 50% got HIPEC and then five cycles of chemotherapy and the other 50% got just six cycles of chemotherapy and no HIPEC. And there wasn't any difference. Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I've never heard of somebody doing this before, but, you know, I was the one who designed the study and Dr. Zivanovich and I worked together very closely on this. And I'm, I can flat out say there are flaws in the study. Um, we just wanted to do a trial to assess this. Um, we had never done a trial of HIPEC before. It, it's questionable whether we used appropriate, we could, could we have used a higher dose of the chemo? Could we have used a different drug? The one that they're using now in all the trials, we used carbo instead of cis. Mm -hmm. And what if we had done the high pec and six treatments of chemo instead of five? So there were definitely, and we're the first to admit there are flaws in the study. You got it published in a high, uh, high impact journal. And you wonder if the trial was negative, is that why they let it be published? Uh, because there's there's definitely there's definitely pools of people out there who really are, don't like HIPEC. Um, that being said, there was a positive trial in patients who get chemotherapy 
then have what's called interval debulking and get HIPEC at that time and then go on to more chemotherapy. There was a positive trial from the Netherlands. Van Driel was the first author. And that, because it was such a uh, published in the New England Journal um, and was a randomized trial, it is a, not the, but a uh, standard of care in patients who have interval debulking surgery. So that trial was a, a positive trial. That same group is now doing a very similar trial at initial surgery. You do the surgery and then you randomize. 50% get HIPEC, 50% don't get HIPEC. They still, still get the same chemotherapy. And that trial is, is actually ongoing right now. So in terms of HIPEC, I mean, what is the, you know, I've heard that there's a lot of toxicity involved with, with that. I mean, has... Had that been studied uh, closely, or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, there, there is, there is some significant toxicity, but in um, it, it, and the, the worry is about the kidneys and the neuropathy and kidneys especially, and so there, there is a drug that can be given that is being given now in the trial of the upfront setting uh, that really can kind of negate a lot of the kidney toxicity of the cisplatin that's given. So I want to just, uh, I know I spoke so much about, I never really did finish uh, about the trust study. Um, I remember we talked about that and you said, what, what, when are we expecting the results? The trust study finished accrual and we hope to get some results from the trust study of primary debulking versus neoadjuvant chemotherapy and interval debulking sometime next year, but it won't be overall survival. It's too early. The preliminary results are that because you had to have really an expert surgical center enroll in the trial. The patients are all doing so well. Not enough patients are recurring and, and not hardly any patients are, are passing away of disease. So by the time we actually get enough events to say that one arm was better than the other it may take longer than we initially anticipated. But um, that's the update on the trust study. And generally speaking, though, between, I mean, coming back to the minimally invasive versus the, the you know, the uh, open. So in generally speaking, in terms of progression-free survival or just even overall survival, are they pretty similar or is there a significant difference in um, lifestyle slash the number of additional months or years in one surgery versus the other? Has are you that talking about minimally invasive surgery versus open? Yes. Yeah. So there is something called the LANCE trial, and that is evaluating just that in patients who've had a very, very good response to chemotherapy. So even the people who are pushing for this kind of approach are saying, yeah, they had to, the patients had to have a really good response to chemotherapy. So the CAT scan looks like almost all the cancer is gone. The CA125 blood test has gone down from 2,000 to 30. Um, uh, in those patients, they're doing a trial now of, of open operation versus minimally invasive operation. I think they're going to present the data at the IGCS meeting in Korea. I wouldn't be surprised if if the results are similar um, because you're you're already dealing with a group of patients where the the amount of disease was already so minimum and you're already dealing with um, frankly with surgeons who are really pretty much kind of like they they really don't want to do big operations so they don't want to strip the diaphragm and take out disease from the chest and do all that kind of stuff and so you could see how they did what they do open, they're going to do minimally invasive. And uh, let me just tell you, if if you're really doing a big debulking, I mean, if you tried to do a minimally invasive surgery, the way we do our open debulkings, you'd be there for two days. 
it's just you know practically a little bit difficult. So I, I think you're going to end up comparing uh, minimally invasive surgery uh, that's not necessarily as aggressive as it could be to the same people doing the open surgery, not as aggressive as it could be. Exactly. And then they're going to say, well, we got all the cancer out 99% of the time in both arms, which mm -hmm. is, uh, you have to take that with a grain of salt. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So there are so many terminologies with surgery. I'm, I'm learning so much. So it's uh, the, also I was just reading that this study indicates that ultra radical surgery, and you talked about the high volume centers uh, with high expertise may result in excellent survival rates within uh, acceptable rate of major complications. This is exactly what I read. So tell us more about what is an ultra radical surgery? And what does it mean? And what are the uh, acceptable major complications that our overcomers should be aware of? So ultra radical, you know, that, that's, that's one of the things that I go around the country and even internationally talking about. Um, be, because ovarian cancer is managed initially by people who are OBGYN trained. Four years of residency, we're, de we're delivering babies for two of those years. And then one year where we're doing tubal ligations. And at the end of four years, if you can do a hysterectomy at the end of four years, that's good training. And then you take that and then you then say, okay, well, ovarian cancer starts in the ovary and then it goes to the pelvis and it goes to the upper abdomen. We're trained as at best as gynecologic oncologists as pelvic surgeons first. We do radical surgeries called exenterations. So people call it ultra radical surgery. It's another way of saying it's surgery that, that I don't know how to do or surgery that they only do at certain centers or surgery that I don't believe in. There's nothing ultra radical about what our center and a lot of other people, other centers do. So the example I always give is it's ultra radical for me, Dennis Chi, as a gynecologic oncologist to take out a four centimeter tumor from the liver. That's ultra radical. But my liver surgeons in the next OR room, they do it all day. They're taking out tumors from the liver all day. Are they ultra radical surgeons? Why is it that it's ultra radical for me but it's not ultra radical for them. And if those liver surgeons then were operating on a patient with a liver tumor and they found a tumor on the uterus, I guess that's ultra radical for a liver surgeon to take out the uterus because they don't normally do that. So this whole notion of ultra radical is really, I don't know how to do it. It's, I'm unfamiliar with it. So it's ultra radical. Yes, it is longer if you operate in the pelvis and the abdomen and all those things, but there's nothing specific to what we do that is so radical. I mean, I think the biggest thing that patients are concerned about is remember the bowel. Uh, I could talk to patients about taking out the piece of the liver or the spleen or this or that or the other thing. The one thing they don't want that they would consider ultra radical is the dreaded bag. No, don't give me a bag for my stool. But the reason we would give somebody a bag usually is because we're taking out a piece of the colon called the rectum that's very low, but that's in the pelvis. So that's, is, is that, is that, is that not ultra radical now because we're in the pelvis and the reconnection didn't go so well. So I gave you a temporary bag. Is that ultra radical? I don't, I think ultra radical is a medical term that people think is, is something that we shouldn't be doing, but 
I'll just end this with ovarian cancer doesn't care who's doing the surgery. Ovarian cancer is going to go where it wants to go. And they don't, ovarian cancer doesn't care that people call it ultra radical. Ovarian cancer is going to go to the diaphragm. It's going to go to the spleen. It's going to go to the bowel. And if you don't know how to do, take it out as a surgeon, that's on you. That's not, the ovarian cancer is the same here as it is all over the world. It goes throughout the belly. So uh, yeah, I don't really think that what we do is ultra radical at all. Okay. Thank you. So since, uh, you know, you are such a, such an expert on surgery and also like, you know, I'm going to go to the prevention side a little bit. So I'm sure you have read all these recent articles on removal of fallopian tubes uh, for, it, it's a hot topic, right? In ovarian cancer prevention with, we have seen so many messages targeting even the general population to, to take out their fallopian tubes to reduce um, ovarian cancer risk. And so my question is, what percentage of ovarian cancers can actually be prevented? Uh, and what, what subtypes are we talking about here? And who should seriously consider? And what are the risks and benefits of, of such a such a you know procedure? Uh, can you shed some light into this? And what are your personal thoughts on this particular prevention technique that's just getting so much press these days? Yeah, so it, it is an extremely hot topic. And uh, I'm I'm proud to say that one of our surgeons um, uh, at Memorial Sloan Kettering on the section of ovarian cancer surgery is one of the leading experts on this, Kara Long Roach, and you know maybe you'll invite her to speak. Um, she and uh, a couple others, including Rebecca Stone, just wrote uh, something for um, I do believe it was JAMA uh, on an opinion on on doing this, and I think uh, it came out. I don't know if it came out as a response or or just their own opinion, uh, because I think something happened. I think they put it, in, something was published in the New York Times. And the, the, the thinking is that now we now know that serous ovarian cancer, 80% are, of the cancers that we're talking about are what's called serous. That means that the, the, the tissue looks like it came from the fallopian tube. And so that's really where things started making sense. When we started doing prophylactic removal of the tubes and ovaries to prevent ovarian cancer in BRCA patients, we found that there was a precursor thing called a stick lesion or the seed, if you will, for ovarian cancer, for serous ovarian cancer was actually from the fallopian tube. And so that little seed grew into a, a big cancer, either on the fallopian tube, that's fallopian tube cancer, or got engulfed in the ovary, perhaps at the time of ovulation, then it grew to a big thing, that's ovarian cancer, or dropped into the belly and then became a cancer that's called peritoneal cancer. So the most common way that that all manifested itself is in a big ovarian tumor. And so the thinking is, can you take out that part of the fallopian tube where that seed is, what's called the fimbria, the right part right next to the ovary, can you preventatively take that out and prevent the seed from germinating and becoming cancer. And it's it, it's definitely something that's part of the standard of care. In somebody who has a BRCA mutation and has maybe a 40% chance of getting ovarian cancer, we don't just take out their ovaries, we take out their tubes and ovaries. That's how we found these stick lesions in the, these seeds in the first place. So then the question is for, there's maybe 80, 85% of women who get ovarian cancer that don't have a BRCA mutation. Can we do it? Can we take out the tubes in them and not the ovaries, 
so you wouldn't have hormonal deprivation. Can we prevent ovarian cancer in, in those patients? And theoretically, maybe yes. Uh, it's thought that you could prevent it's a couple, a few thousand cases per year, but it's not yet been definitively proven. Um, there was a study in Canada that showed that in all these women who have what's called opportunistic salpingectomy, you're having a colon cancer operation. Tell them to call the gynecologist in to take out the tubes. You're having your uterus removed for fibroids. Leave the ovaries so you don't have no ovarian function, no hormones, but take the tubes out. So this opportunistic salpingectomy has been done in a big study in Canada. And the women who had it done, hundreds of thousands of women, none got ovarian cancer. But it, those women weren't followed for 20 years. So we don't know uh, if that's really going to do the trick. Um, there's There's... Clinical trials now they're being designed that we will do it at Memorial uh, for women who are having, let's say, a colon cancer operation. Should and we take their tubes out, will there be a decrease in that specific patient and all patients who get this done getting ovarian cancer? It's such a rare cancer that you have to do this opportunistic salpingectomy in women who don't have a BRCA mutation or other. You have to do hundreds of thousands to really see if it's going to make a difference. Uh, but it is definitely promising. And the reason why I'm hedging my bet a little bit here is uh, I do agree with the experts in the field who, after this came out, who said, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't everybody rush to their gynecologist and get your tubes out. I mean, we're, we're, we're not yet there, uh, but we're working on it. And, and that is exactly, that was exactly my point also is, um, you know, um, for for women like like let's say for me as an example right i do have a family history but i am not uh, i've I've tested negative for my BRCA mutation. So for for women like us uh, who are done with childbearing, I'm not at the operation table for something else, you know. Um would you consider doing this for women like us who are not really the general population but we are somewhere in the in between um but who are not at the operating table for something else i mean or would that be too aggressive a measure for prevention you think in your i guess there's there's a lot of political issues and and things like that so this is on the internet so i don't really want to say anything and get myself in in hot water but i think on an individual basis i don't think it's 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 that unreasonable in somebody who's done with childbearing, who has a family history of ovarian cancer, to consider and discuss with her uh, individual surgeon uh, whether there would be a benefit to to taking the tubes out. I guess a lot of it is, you know, we always have to worry about what if things don't go well? What if somebody has a major complication for this, for doing an operation that really isn't, quote unquote, the standard of care and all that stuff? So I don't really want to go into that, but I would say uh, personally on an individual basis, I think it's it's something that's a consideration and, and should be a conversation if if the patient wanted to think about it and talk about it. Okay, thank you. So we have um, talked about a lot of things, Dr. Chi. What have I missed asking you? There's so much happening. I mean, you know, anything that you would like to share that I missed asking? Well, I, I just think that uh, your your group is so is so wonderful and and so you're so passionate and and you're doing so much. Uh, I just hope that you can keep on doing what you're doing and, and somehow get the word out. I mean, you guys are so well-educated and you listen to these podcasts and everything and, and you know so much. I just wish there was a way for you all to get more recognition and get a bigger reach 
so that the people who are initially diagnosed know um, what you know. And I don't claim to know. I mean, I can barely turn on my computer. Um, and But if if, if, if if there was some way to really get the word out that when you get diagnosed, don't panic. Don't just go to somebody and have some uh, incomplete operation or start on chemotherapy without a full assessment and, uh, and, and just go to people who have experience and a passion to, to do this. I'm not exactly sure how that actually gets done, but I know you all have a better chance of, of accomplishing that than I do. I'm just sitting in my office in New York. You know, you guys have a much farther reach than I do. So the, the message is go see Dr. Chi if you're diagnosed. <laughs> not at all me, but people, there's people in every state uh, that do this for a living and they know what they're doing. And that's, that's, and, and I'm not saying you have to go to, to the best cancer center in the world, but I think you need to go to somebody who, who really, I mean, at the minimum, a gynecologic oncologist, right? I mean, that's, that's the minimum. And then, you know, as, as your patients will always tell us that if you have an option, always go to the goat of the ovarian cancer world. <laughs> world right um so thank you so much dr chi this has been an amazing conversation and uh you you know freely share your time and your knowledge and your you know advice with our overcomers we are so appreciative uh for that and um, so great discussion and overcomers hope this was beneficial for you i know that you know i always say this that when these experts come to to our episodes we learn so much from them especially dr g because i just love talking to him and all the uh, his candid uh, candid thoughts on everything related to ovarian cancer surgery so I hope this was uh, as beneficial to you as it was for me. And please share these uh, insights that he just shared with us uh, with anyone far and wide so that everyone gets as knowledgeable. Our goal here is to educate and to empower. And we will be back with the next episode of Connect Over Coffee very soon. Until then, you keep overcoming. Thank you and bye. Thank you for joining us. Make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by our sponsors, GSK and Clovis Oncology, and by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Be sure to tune in for our next episode. Cheers to overcoming.